a little bit about my background to give uh, an idea of what has formed who I am today. <clears throat> I grew up in a pretty traditional, religiously traditional church long before any of you here knew me. Oh, maybe there were a few men here who knew me back in then, but for the most part, probably not more than two or three people knew me back in my teens, long before my wife met me, long before my children met me. And there was a lot of focus put on doctrine. We need to be doctrinally correct about things, and we will excommunicate anybody who is doctrinally wrong. And the doctrine was nothing more than sometimes a traditional thing that had no root in Scripture. And so people were being disciplined for things that didn't matter. So the word doctrine was actually a trigger for me for some years. After we left that place, I just, the word doctrine just evoked feelings in me. And I didn't like it. And I remember a few years later hearing a preacher preach. It was probably 20 some years ago. This preacher said, doctrine is very important. He said, I know some of you sitting here have been burned with that. And I was sitting there and I had been burned with it. But he said, I just want to tell you, you may not agree with me. But he said, five years from now, you will agree with me. About five years later, I saw that. Because see, doctrine, the cross, salvation by grace through faith is doctrine. But because I had heard doctrine in the context of nothing more than man-made opinions and such, teaching for doctrine the commandments of men, and doctrine in a gospel-less way, it just evoked all kinds of negative feelings for me for some years. The same way with the word submit. That was a trigger for me for some years. And as I was telling a couple of brothers this morning, do you know what one of the triggers is for me at this point? Not completely a trigger. I love the word, but it can very easily trigger me. That is the word discernment. Why? Because I've seen it so abused. I've seen scriptures used as a club. I have used the word, seen discernment used as a control mechanism. And that is not the heart of God. That is not the heart of God in the word of God. Now, all of us, based on our past experiences, there are certain words and terminology that we have seen abused. And it evokes negative emotions in us when we hear them. So I'm telling you, three of those words, two in the past, the word submission and the word doctrine were triggers for me for some years. And presently, I have to be, even be careful with discernment. I use it. And it's a beautiful word. <laughs> but because of the abusive way it's been used... I tend to, <clears throat> I, have to, I have to remind myself, all right, let's, let's focus on the true aspect of discernment because we desperately need discernment in our day. So the Bible, when I use, when I talk about being word-centered, what I mean is the Bible and the word of God being central in our life in our churches in our life in that but i'm going to go the rest of the week and saying what i mean by the central bible not only those scriptures but 
the gospel-centered approach to Scripture. Because what will give us a negative idea of making a priority of the Word of God is if we see that abused by people who try to use it to control others. That's not the heart of God. The heart of God is that we experience the gospel of grace through the reading of his word. When we experience the love of God and the grace of God through his word. (laughs) Thank you so much. When we experience that through his word. We that same love that we experience through his word. We will minister to others. Do you want to know how you know what's going on in someone's life? Between them and God. Watch how they relate to other people. It is dead accurate. Every time. If you see somebody. Using the word of God. To uh, control other people. And try to whip them into line. And use it in a critical. Condemning way toward people. Guaranteed. 100% without fail. That is how they are relating to God. They feel, if we feel that God is relating to us in a performance-oriented way, or if we are relating to God in a performance-oriented way, if we are insecure in our walk with the Lord, who we are in Christ, if we are insecure, if we feel like we have to prove ourselves to God constantly and toe a certain line constantly, that is what we will do to other people every time. And the reverse is true. If we are walking in grace and in the love of God, we will show the same grace, the same love to other people. Every time. I have not seen it fail. I have not experienced it in my own life that it has ever failed. The way I relate to other people, the way I relate, if I relate to my wife and children in tension, It's because I'm tense in my spiritual life at that time. And if I'm not tense in my spiritual life, I'm not tense with them. So, as we go through the Word of God (coughs) this week, I really desire to see all of us see Christ in all of Scripture. Because Christ is the one that will minister grace. And it is through His Word, reading His Word, that we experience the grace of Christ that ministers grace to others. Please don't take away from this week that we need to emphasize the word of God so that we can always be straightening each other out and criticizing each other. If that's what it produces, we've missed the point. You see, there was a time, truth is important, very important. I think we all recognize that. But we've seen that term truth used in abusive ways. There was a time in the Old Testament where Hezekiah led a revival, King Hezekiah. And what happened? The people came and they celebrated the feasts like they had not for many, many years. There was a return to the Lord. And suddenly Hezekiah was made aware. People came to him and said, they are not doing this in a scriptural way. And they weren't. They were doing it in a way they had forgotten to purify themselves. Were they doing it the right way? No. You know what Hezekiah said? The Lord pardon everyone whose heart is set to seek him. And God did. See, God looked past 
the wrong thing and saw their hearts were after him. And though they were doing it wrong, it was okay with God for that time because he saw the hearts of the people. Does that mean that it was never important after that that they obey that? No. But do you see the difference between that and saying, you're wrong. I discern that is wrong and destroy the whole work of God because of a little bit of a doctrinal mistake they made. Do you see the difference? That's what I'm talking about. If we see the gospel in all of scripture, we will have that same kind of grace and we will understand that God relates to us that way. Not that God doesn't care. After they were made aware of that, God didn't want them to be careless of it. But they had forgotten that in their search for God. And sometimes in our journey with God, we don't get all things right. That's okay. That's okay if we don't understand everything from the Bible. But let's keep walking with God. And let's keep the word of God in our lives. It's central in our lives. Because it is through the word of God. And the gospel in the word of God. That that security in Christ is found. And when we find that security in Christ and who we are, we begin to walk in grace toward each other and the God with the gifts of his spirit begins to awaken them in people because we are producing an environment. The word of God understood through gospel lenses produces environment in which the Holy Spirit can work with all his beautiful gifts. So my heart this week is seeing Christ as the interpretive center of all scripture. Today, the title of the message would be, Did Not Our Hearts Burn Within Us? Anybody know where that comes from? Just call it out. The road to Emmaus. Did not our heart burn within us? Who said that? To the disciples on the road to Emmaus, after (coughs) what had transpired (laughs) that caused them to say that. He opened up the Old Testament scriptures and what did he show them from the Old Testament? You? And what did you say? Yeah, everything that must happen inside the things concerning himself. You're both right. The things concerning himself. Ought not Christ, the Messiah. By the way, the word Christ is the English translation of the Hebrew word Messiah. The word Messiah comes from the Hebrew, Christ, from the Greek. Both mean the same thing. Where, which scriptures did he open up? Which scriptures did he use to show Christ? Let's read it. Luke chapter 24, beginning in verse 13. (coughs) And behold, two of them went that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was from Jerusalem about three score furlongs. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. And it came to pass that (coughs) while they communed together and reasoned, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were holden that they should not know him. And he said unto them, What manner of communications are these that ye have one to another, and as ye walk, and are sad? And the one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answering, said unto him, Art thou only a stranger in Jerusalem, and hast not known the things which are come to pass there in these days? And he said unto them, 
what things? And they said unto him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, which was a prophet mighty indeed in word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and have crucified him. But we trusted that it had been he which should have redeemed Israel. And beside all this, today is a third day since these things were done. Yea, <coughs> and certain women also of our company made us astonished, which were early at the sepulcher. And when they found not his body, they came, saying that they had also seen a vision of angels, which said that he was alive. And certain of them which were with us went to the sepulcher and found it even so as the women had said, but him they saw not. Now Jesus begins to speak and take note. I'm going to read slowly, deliberately with emphasis. Then he said unto them, O fools, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? Pause there a little bit and take note. What was their problem? They didn't see what was in the scriptures of the Old Testament all along. Jesus said, fools, slow of heart to believe. Your problem is you didn't believe because you couldn't see it. What the prophets had spoken. He gave them no new information here. All he did was take them back to their own scriptures and say, can't you see what was there all along? The Old Testament is about me. And you missed it. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And they drew nigh unto the village whither they went, and he made as though he would have gone further. Let's pause. Moses, the five books of Moses, are which books? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, about Christ. All the prophets about Christ, all the scriptures. Moses and all the prophets and all the scriptures. The entire Old Testament is about Christ. And they never saw it. And Jesus said, you're fools for not having seen it. The reason you didn't see it is you didn't believe it. And they drew nigh unto the village whither they went. And he made, <coughs> excuse my cough, <coughs> and he made as though he would have gone further. But they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to tarry with them. And it came to pass, as he sat at meat with them, he took bread and blessed it, and brake and gave to them. And their eyes were opened, and they knew him, and he vanished out of their sight. And they said one to another, Did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us by the way and while he opened to us the scriptures did not our heart burn within us young people when you go to the old testament and read it does your heart burn within you if not you're probably missing what the old testament is about and it's easy to do i'm hoping tomorrow we're going to go into the old testament and we're going to spend the rest of the week in the old testament after today, and show you what these disciples saw on the road to Emmaus, some of it. I wish I could have been there and learned from Jesus himself. But I think we'll see a little bit more clearly 
by the end of the week what they, what they saw on the road to Emmaus. Tomorrow, we're going to go into First and Second Samuel and show you what they saw in First and Second Samuel. We're going to go the next day into Psalms and show you what they saw in Psalms. After that, we're going to go to the sin of Achan and show you what God shows us about redemption through the sin of Achan. But Moses, first five books, all the prophets and all the scriptures, the things concerning Christ. Now let's turn to Acts chapter 3, beginning in verse 13. Peter, <coughs> excuse me, Peter is preaching. And he says this, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his son Jesus, whom ye delivered up and denied him in the presence of Pilate <coughs> when he was determined to let him go. But ye denied the Holy One and the just and desired a murderer to be granted unto you and killed the prince of life whom God hath raised from the dead where we are witnesses. And his name, through faith in his name, hath made this man strong whom ye see and know. Yea, the faith which is by him hath given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. And now, brethren, I wot that through ignorance ye did it as did also your rulers. But those things which God before hath showed by the mouth of all his prophets, that Christ should suffer, he hath so fulfilled. Repent ye therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. And he shall send Jesus, which, was, which before was preached unto you, whom the heaven must receive <coughs> until the times of restitution of all things, which... God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. For Moses truly said unto the fathers, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren like unto me. Him shall ye hear in all things whatsoever he shall say unto you. And it shall come to pass that every soul which will not hear that prophet shall be destroyed from among the people. Yea, and all the prophets from Samuel... Samuel was the first of the prophets there, of the official who operated in the official capacity of a prophet. That's why we're going to look at First and Second Samuel tomorrow. All the prophets from Samuel and those that follow after, as many as have spoken, have likewise foretold of these days. Ye are the children of the prophets, and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying unto Abraham. And in thy seed shall all the kindreds of the earth be blessed. Unto you first God, having raised up his son Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from his sins. Take note. You are the children of the prophets and you are the children of the covenant which God made with Abraham. I'm going to tell you a little bit about that covenant this morning. Because that covenant is crucial in understanding the message of Christ in the Old Testament. So we'll come back to that. Acts chapter 7, beginning in verse 52. Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? And they, your fathers, have slain them which showed before of the coming of the just one, Christ, of whom ye have now been the betrayers and murderers, Stephen before the council, who have received the law <coughs> by the disposition of angels and have not kept it. So Stephen is saying, look, your forefathers killed the prophets who foretold of Jesus. And now you killed the Jesus that the prophets foretold of. 
So here in Luke, we have Jesus beginning with Moses and all the prophets opening up in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. The New Testament was not written as of yet. Yet the first five of the books books of the Bible which Moses wrote are really about Christ. Every one of the prophets in the Old Testament had a message, and that message was Christ. And then he also went to all the scriptures and showed the disciples the things about himself in them. And thus we have it from Jesus Christ himself that the Old Testament scriptures are really about himself. The disciples responded, like I said, by saying, did not our heart burn within us? Then we have Peter preaching to the crowd. Peter told them that Samuel and all the prophets that follow spoke of Christ. From the very first prophet in the official capacity of a prophet, Samuel, God revealed Jesus. And Peter makes it clear that the prophets said it would be through Christ that God would fulfill the covenant made with Abraham. Peter said all these promises, all these things that prophets <coughs> prophesied were fulfilled when the Abrahamic covenant was fulfilled, which was Christ, the fulfillment of that <coughs> Abrahamic covenant. What was the Abrahamic covenant? We call it Abrahamic because it was made to Abraham. Every promise of God for the salvation of mankind hung on the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. The very existence of God himself hung on the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. If God did not fulfill the Abrahamic covenant, he was going to cease to exist. We find that covenant made in Genesis chapter 15. Some of you have heard me say this before, but probably most of you haven't. So bear with me, those who've heard me say it before. The Abrahamic covenant was a covenant that God made with Abraham, promising all kinds of promises to him. Gifts, future posterity, that through his posterity, all the families of the earth were going to be blessed. And he was going to keep that covenant no matter what. That is why he brought out in, by Romans chapter 10 or 11, I always forget which of those chapters it's in, says the gift for the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. That's not talking about the gifts of the Spirit, by the way. It is simply saying that God cursed Israel for the sake of the Gentiles, but then when he saved the Gentiles, he used their salvation to provoke the Jews to jealousy and save the Jews. So they are, the Jews, Gentiles, are cursed for your sake, but they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. He is saying God fulfilled the promises to save the Jews through cursing them in order to open the door to the Gentiles and save them through the salvation of the Gentiles. Because when he made those promises in that covenant to Abraham, he is not going to go back on that promises. He will not turn away from it. He will not repent from it. That's what that verse is saying. Nothing to do with the gifts of the Spirit. But, so what was his covenant? Genesis chapter 15, God made all these promises to Abraham. Abraham said, Lord, how am I going to know that it's going to be fulfilled? God said, well, you're going to have to be righteous. 
you're going to have to be totally righteous if, in order for me to fulfill this thing. So it's conditioned on your righteousness, Abraham. But I will fulfill it as surely as I exist. Now, does, does that mean that God foreknew that Abraham would be righteous? No, God foreknew he wouldn't. The very next chapter, he went into Hagar and made that mistake. God knew he's going to do that. So how can this covenant be both conditioned on Abraham's righteousness and be as certain as God's existence? Why do I say it's as certain as God's existence? Because when Abraham asked God, God, how do I know it's going to happen? God said, all right, I want you to do, I want you to get some animals and some birds, kill them, divide them in half and lay the pieces, one on one side of a trail, the other on the other side of the trail. That was the ancient Hebrew way of making a signing a contract. Today we sign a contract. Both parties, there's two lines. If I, if I want to do a kitchen for somebody, I'll write out the contract and I'll say, now I'll sign my, I'll sign my <clears throat> name here on the dotted line, which means I will fulfill all the obligations set forth in the contract. The customer signs his name saying, if I fulfill all that, he will pay me the full price that the contract terms specify. Both names have to be signed. So what was happening here is God said, all right, here's what we're going to do. We're going to sign that contract. But their way of doing it was dividing animals in half, pieces. And there was literally a trail of blood between these pieces. Then what would happen is both parties signing the contract would walk on that trail of blood between those pieces. One at a time. I'll go through. Now you go through. What they were saying is, if I fail to keep my end of this contract, let happen to me what happened to these animals. Let me be cut in pieces and cease to exist. We read about it in Genesis 15. So what happened? Abraham gets everything ready. All right, here's the contract, God. Show up. Let's sign it. I'll be righteous. God, you'll keep your end of the covenant. God waits and waits and waits and waits and doesn't show up until Abraham is in a deep sleep and, as the KJV says, a horror of great darkness. What happens if you are in a deep sleep? Can you walk that trail? No. What happens if you're in an inky black cave Pressing darkness around you. Can you walk that trail? No. What happens if you're in a deep sleep in an inky dark cave? Can you walk that trail? No. What's going on? God waits until Abraham is as helpless as he ever was. Powerless to sign that contract. Then a smoking furnace and a burning lamp pass between those pieces. If you will talk to Messianic Jews, those who believe in the Messiah, understand this scripture, here's what they say happened. God, the burning lamp was God walking between those pieces. The smoking furnace was God walking between those pieces. What's going on? God is saying, all right, I'm going to walk through here one time. I'm signing my name on my dotted line. I'm going to walk through here again. Twice he walked through. It means I'm signing my name. On the line for Abraham. What's going on? Abraham, you must be righteous, but you're not righteous. If I don't fulfill this covenant, 
Let me be cut in pieces and cease to exist. How can a promise be both conditional and as certain as God's existence? Any time in the Bible where you find the covenant that is both conditional and certain to be fulfilled, you will find God himself stepping in to meet the conditions. See, God said, Abraham, I'll keep my end of the deal. And Abraham, I'll sign my name on your dotted line, which means I will keep your end of the deal. How did he do that? By imputing righteousness to Abraham. And thus Abraham was righteous. It wasn't his own righteousness. It was God's righteousness imputed to him. Therefore, it was certain because God himself met the conditions. We're going to talk about the Mosaic Covenant and the Davidic Covenant later on this week. And we're going to find one that was, they were all always conditional, but one of them was not certain. The other one was. We have to understand that. And Peter is saying here that Christ is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. Christ's righteousness was retroactively imputed to Abraham. Christ's righteousness is imputed to us. Therefore, we experience the fulfillment of that. So now we have Stephen. He's standing before the council. Stephen said that these, your, the council here, your forefathers, killed the prophets who foretold of the coming of Christ. Now, young people, you may be asking yourselves, I know that the prophets prophesied of Christ, but did they all? And if they all prophesied of Christ, like I said they did, did all the other Old Testament scriptures prophesy of him as well? And I say resounding, yes. I told you yesterday, how many have heard the, the old term in the Roman, ancient Roman Empire, all roads lead to Rome? All scripture leads to Christ. All Old Testament scripture has a path to Christ. Until we understand the Christ connection, we're not, don't really understand that scripture. Until I understand the Christ connection, I'm not really ready to preach that scripture. Because I will preach it in a moralistic, moralistic, death-giving, critical way of coming across and just sour people at the idea of being biblically accurate. Because there's no biblical accuracy where Christ is missing, where the gospel is missing. <clears throat> All of the scripture is about the gospel. If we miss seeing the gospel in any scripture, then we have missed the point of that scripture. Now, you may ask, you mean I can pick any verse in the Bible and it's about Christ? Not necessarily that verse, but that verse is part of a larger context, a larger storyline. And that storyline is going to point to Christ in one way or another. I'll tell you about that tomorrow, how badly I struggled when I went to a workshop in Washington, D.C., and had to come up with a sermon outline and present it to a bunch of other pastors and we'd critique each other's things and they assigned me from first samuel the chapter about saul in the witch going to the witch of endor what's the gospel connection i'll tell you about that tomorrow and the discovering of it being part of a larger storyline though the christ connection was hard to make from that chapter itself all right 
So I've shown you that Jesus himself and Peter (coughs) and Stephen understood the Old Testament to be about Christ. Many people have made the Old Testament about works and law, but not about grace. Mankind was never saved through works. That's a snare of those who teach the aspects of dispensationalism as God in different dispensations of time had different methods of saving people. No, he didn't. We read the Old Testament through covenantal framework. And I'll make that a little clearer later on in the week. But God never saved them through works. It was always grace through faith. Has always been God's program. In fact, the law, Jesus said, the very law testified of me. You've missed me in the law. Do you know how the law testified of him? God made an offer of salvation by those who perfectly keep the law, which was the Ten Commandments. He said, do them and you'll live. That's why when the man came to Jesus and said, Jesus, good master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, you want to know what you have to do? All right, keep the law and you'll have eternal life. That's the offer. The man, well, I have. You have? Let's see if you have. See, that's what's going on there. When God gave that law, immediately before Israel took one step further, he gave them the sacrificial system. Why? Because he knew they wouldn't keep the law. Right there, they should have known. If God sets up a sacrificial system to find pardon, obviously I'm not saved through my works. Obviously I need grace. But they didn't see that, and they turned the sacrificial system into another work instead of an understanding of grace. We'll cover that a little more thoroughly a couple days from now. He was never saved through works. Salvation was always by grace through faith. Romans 1 brings that out when it says, from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. From faith in the Old Testament to faith in the New Testament. And the Jews are thinking, what do you mean faith in the Old Testament? Faith is a new message. Paul is saying, no, it's not. I'll take you back to your Old Testament scripture to show it's been by faith. And he quoted Habakkuk to show that it was in faith even in the Old Testament. Many people have gotten so far off track of the gospel that they not only miss the gospel in the Old Testament, they miss it in the New Testament. And they begin to teach the New Testament as nothing more than a higher moral standard than the Old Testament that we attain to in a gospel-less way. They understand the Bible to be nothing more or not much more than a book of moral guidelines. What a sad, empty way to view the Bible. That, folks, is what makes us Use the Bible as a critical club over other people. That gives no room for grace. Timothy was a young man who had been taught the scriptures from a child. He was a man who had been taught the scriptures through the lenses of Judaism. Judaism meaning the works of the law. He was thoroughly familiar with the Old Testament scriptures. Paul told him so. He had been taught the scriptures through the lenses of Judaism, but the Apostle Paul told him to preach the word the way Paul had taught him, not the way his mother and grandmother had taught him. We mentioned that yesterday. I'm going to bring that out a little more today. He says in 2 Timothy chapter 1, <coughs> verse 13, he says this, Hold fast 
the form of sound words which thou hast heard of me in faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. He's not saying hold fast the form of sound words which you've learned in your Jewish synagogues from your synagogue leaders. They didn't teach you the gospel in it. Hold fast the gospel form of sound words which you've learned from me. See, I said yesterday that means there's structure to the gospel. If we miss the gospel and misrepresent the gospel, the power of the Spirit can't work in our lives. We've got to get the gospel right. There's structure, the form, the pattern, the structure of sound words which you've heard from me. Where is that structure found? In the book of Romans, as clearly as anywhere in the Bible. Paul lays out the depravity of man, the need for salvation by grace through faith, who Christ was and, and what it produces in our lives and the regeneration and on and on it goes to the book of Romans. And he said, hold fast that. If you miss teaching the depravity of man, man won't understand their need of a savior and it'll lead to humanism. If you miss the gospel aspect of it, You'll be teaching the Bible through moralistic lenses. Don't miss any of the components of the gospel message. Because if you do, you miss the gospel. And it is through the gospel and through keeping that message focused, the word of God, gospel focused, that the power of the spirit works in your life. So hold fast the form, the pattern of sound words which you've heard from me. The gospel, as I said yesterday, was given by revelation to the Apostle Paul, the gospel of regeneration, <coughs> and, to the other, uh, and to the other disciples after the resurrection. It was not known before the resurrection. It was revealed to them after the resurrection. It was the mystery kept secret from the foundation of the world. And that mystery is as clearly spelled out in Romans chapter 5, 12 through 21 as anywhere I know in the, Old, in the New Testament. But that was Paul's message, the gospel, the mystery. And Paul said, Timothy, I've taught that to you. That is what I want you to preach from the, when you t- uh, uh, preach the Old Testament scriptures. You've known them from a child, but teach them through the lenses that I've taught you. Now he says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, And the things which you have heard from me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. Do you see how he's saying? Preach the word the way you've learned it from me. What did he learn from Paul? As opposed to what he learned from his mother and grandmother. The gospel. Evil men, chapter 3, and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom you have learned them. He's comparing himself, who's taught them, to the false Judaizers who were trying to influence him. Don't go their way. They're going to teach you the Bible and teach you to preach the Bible through the lenses of Judaism, but no, you know what you've learned from me. You know who I am. That is how you're supposed to continue in and teach it. <clears throat> the gospel, 
cannot be preached through example alone. You've heard it said, (coughs) how many have heard this? Live the gospel and when necessary, use words. Is that a true statement or not? No. Should we live the gospel? Yes. That reinforces what we've heard or what people have heard. But folks, nobody is going to have any idea of the depravity of man and of their sinful state and of the atoning work of Christ and what he did for them on the cross and their need of that Savior and understand the theology of what Christ did them simply from watching your life. At some point, you're going to have to tell them and put into words the gospel. The gospel is not... See, Christ lived the perfect life, didn't he? But like we said yesterday, the life of Christ, as beautiful as it was, he could have lived that a thousand years and it would not have saved one poor soul. He had to die. And the gospel message is a message very simple. Christ died, was buried, rose again. You put your faith in him, his death becomes your death, his burial becomes your resurrection, your burial, his resurrection becomes your resurrection. You rise into a new creature when you rise with him. You're a new creation created in him. That's the mystery. That's the gospel in a nutshell. The gospel is never what we do for Christ. What we do for Christ is important, but it's not the gospel. The gospel is what he's done for us. Baptism is not the gospel. Repentance is not the gospel. You say, whoa, what do you mean? I thought they're both necessary. Yeah, they are both necessary. Repentance is what we do in order to experience the gospel, but it's not the gospel. Jesus said, repent and believe the gospel. You see the difference? Baptism We better be baptized if we've experienced the gospel, but it's not the gospel. Why do I say that? The apostle Paul said, Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel. So let's not get confused. The gospel is really simple and we've complicated it. It is what Christ has done for us. What we, the way we live out the gospel is important. We follow the example of Christ if we've experienced the gospel. But the example of Christ is not the gospel. The life of Christ is not the gospel. Our lives that we live practically for him is not the gospel. It's the fruit of the gospel. And if that fruit is missing, we haven't experienced it. So, let me give you an illustration on how to approach scripture. Can you project that that I sent to you? All right. As much as possible, and uh, this, can look, this can look a little complicated, but it's not complicated. This is an attempt to wade through the clutter that we have brought to bear on Scripture in order to see Christ in it. When you come to the Scripture, let me say if I'm preaching a message to you, or if you're speaking to other people, or if you're simply in your quiet time reading the Bible, how should you approach the Bible? First of all, begin in the bottom left corner. Begin with the text. Look at the text and read it. Then answer the question, what did it mean to them then, the group of people to whom it was originally written? It's not complicated. We complicate it when we begin to immediately try to figure out what it's telling us. 
That's complicating it. It's simple, basic, common sense. What it, did it mean to them then? Once we have known what it meant to them then, how does that point to Christ? There it takes reflection and a grasp of the Bible as a whole. Then and only then do we know how it applies to us today. Let me give you an example. I have to come up with one. I, can't th- I didn't think of this in advance. Of an example of a scripture. Let's take David with Goliath. And we'll talk about that more tomorrow. What did the story of David facing Goliath mean to them then? It simply meant they needed someone to save them from Goliath, right? Very simple. That's what it meant to them then. David is our hero. He saved us from Goliath. What's the gospel connection? David was a type of Christ, and we're going to see that tomorrow and Friday very clearly. He was a type of Christ. We need a Savior, a Messiah like Israel did. So what does that mean to us today? It means we are all helplessly standing facing our giants and are no match for our giants without a Savior. Very simple cycle. Now what happens if I say, All right, we're going to come to the text. And in this text, we see that David slew Goliath with his stone. Let us apply that. Let's make a gospel connection without without seeing what it meant to them then. Well, okay. We have a giant of sin in our lives. Um, Okay, we have things to overcome We have five smooth stones. The first one is a discipline of prayer. The second one is a discipline of reading the word. The third one is this or that. What are we doing? We're missing the simple common sense what it meant to them, that they needed a savior. And we're turning the story into an allegory that it wasn't meant to be. And we're complicating it. Because anybody can come up with any type of allegory from that. Now suppose... I turn the story into, I say, okay, what it meant to them then, and I decide what it meant to them then was that David trusted in God, he was good, he was strong, and immediately, instead of going to the gospel connection, to us now. Be like David. Now what have I turned the Bible story into? Moralism. No gospel connection. I got to be strong, I have to do this right, and if I fail... Well, tough luck. Be like David, don't be like Saul. That's moralism. And we miss the fact, are we facing Goliath? Somebody came to me once and said, Paul, but don't you think that there are giants we face in our lives? Yes, there are. Who else was facing the giant in this chapter? Israel. We are not David. We are Israel. How did Israel face their giant? Through a Messiah. That's how they did it. Do you see what the takeaway is? We face our giant through a Savior who fights on our behalf. We all have giants. Now, can we learn some practical things from the life of David? Faithfulness, trusting God? Yes. 
We can learn some of those practical things from him. I'm not opposed to that. If you, if you get up and you use the life of David and say, you know, let's trust in God like David did, great. But let's not miss the main message of the chapter, that of Christ. We'll get into that chapter a little more deeply as we go through Second Samuel, First and Second Samuel tomorrow. But I got ahead of myself and told you a few of the things. <clears throat> anyway, let's look at several chapters. We have ten minutes left. Let's look at several chapters in the book of Second Timothy to show a gospel connection in the New Testament. So, since we're using the book of Second Timothy as a springboard for showing you the gospel in the Bible. The gospel is in more than the Old Testament. It's also in the New Testament. So now we're going to spend 10 minutes in the New Testament in the book of 2 Timothy. Wherefore, chapter 1, verse 6, I put thee in remembrance that thou stir up the gift of God which is in thee by the putting on of my hands. For God hath not given us a spirit of fear, but of power (coughs) and of love and of a sound mind. Timothy was tempted with fear, but Paul told him to refuse fear since fear was not from the spirit of God. Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God. So the preaching of the gospel is accompanied with afflictions. Only the power of God can overcome these afflictions. So he's, he's calling him to a life of hardship. Who has saved us and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world <coughs> began. But is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death and hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Whereunto I am appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher of the Gentiles. Paul is saying, I was appointed to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. He laid the foundation of the gospel and of opening the eyes of the Gentiles, which was his commission. For the which cause... The cause of taking the gospel to the world, I am suffering these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed against that day. And if you read the ESV, you will read this way, to keep that which he has committed to me against that day. Translation is a little tricky sometimes. But... I think they're both saying the same thing. God charged the Apostle Paul with a ministry. And Paul was fulfilled, was committed to doing that. So he took this charge God had given him and said, Lord, I'm entrusting you to help me fulfill this. I have committed the charge that you charged me with. You committed it to me. I'm recommitting it back to you against that day. Now, we can make this all about Be faithful, be faithful, be faithful, Timothy. Don't slip up. Hold fast the pattern of sound words and make it all about man and all about you and I today. The Apostle Paul is saying, Timothy, at the end of the day, God will keep what you can't keep. God is faithful. That's very simple briefly. We could preach a whole message on that. Brings out the triumph of the gospel. You see, Timothy, it's not about you. It's about God. It takes a focus from Timothy onto God. And God becomes the hero of the story in 2 Timothy chapter 1, not Timothy. God is a hero of every Bible story. So, let's go 
Paul was confident that no matter what happened to him, no matter how much he suffered, his mission would not fail because God cannot fail. And that turns it from a man-centered approach to it to a gospel-centered approach to that first chapter. Let's jump to chapter 2. <coughs> it says, Thou therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. He's going to give three illustrations of people who suffer hardness and endure and go through sacrifice for future rewards. And he goes through there and he says, there's a soldier. He just suffers, endures hardness, and he sacrifices pleasures in this life for future rewards. Then he goes to an athlete who denies himself all kinds of things. He denies himself that sugar craving. He's got everything else to keep himself in shape for a future reward. Then he goes to a hardworking farmer. And he says, the husbandman that labors must be first partaker of the fruit. And he uses the illustration of those days that farmers in those days, they would rent land from someone. And as part of the contract, because they didn't all have their own common land under the Romans. So he said, when you want to be a farmer, you go out to a landholder and you get a plot of land and you plant. And you will be the <coughs> first one to get the fruit, the first fruit of that. And the rest goes to the owner of the land. You get the the first fruits of it but you endure and you labor and you sweat for the promise of being the first to get the fruit so the common thread between the three illustrations is endure hardness because there's a reward coming then he injects a little verse in there remember that jesus christ of the seed of david was raised from the dead according to my gospel wherein i suffer trouble as an evildoer but the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure all things for the elect's sake. It goes right back to endurance. So he's not finished with the subject of endurance when he says, Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel. What's he doing? He is telling them. He goes back to, uh, therefore, I endure. So what in the world does remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David have to do with endurance? First time I preached through that, I asked myself that question. What does that have to do with it? Because I thought this passage is about endurance. Then I began to question, is it really about endurance? Well, this verse doesn't make any sense in this context. What's the point? To, well, okay, this verse is the main point. It is the point. Let's look what he's saying. Timothy? Um, let me jump ahead. It's not a subject change. He is saying, I want you to endure, Timothy, but not merely for the sake of endurance. It is about endurance for a very specific reason. Timothy, when you endure, some of your people are going to lose their lives for the cause of the gospel. You're going to be tempted to compromise. You're going to suffer, and you're going to think, if I pass off the scene, who is going to take my place? I'm better off fudging a little, compromising a little bit in order to stay here and keep things together. I can't endure this. Look, my ministry is not possible anymore because my co-pastor on whom I depended so much was just martyred. 
That kind of stuff was going on in Timothy's life. I, I'm fearful. I can't do this. And the Apostle Paul is saying, Timothy, endure. And I want you to remember something. Jesus Christ, of the seed of David, was raised from the dead according to my gospel. Why did he say of the seed of David? He said, the seed of David was the one through whom the Messiah would come. Remember Jesus Christ, who was the Messiah. He was the one on whom every hope of mankind lay. He was the one on, the whole, on whom the whole fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant lay. He was the one where if he failed, if he died, I, God, ceased to exist. He was the one on whom every promise to all mankind lay. Timothy, you think there's a lot at stake for your survival. How much more was at stake with Christ's survival? But Christ died. And every promise of mankind for mankind and their salvation died with him. Or so they thought. But remember, Timothy, God, Christ's death was not a defeat. He was raised from the dead. And though he died, God's gospel message was not defeated. Timothy, you may die as you endure. Don't worry about it. Stay true and endure because your cause cannot fail. Do you see how that becomes the main point? Do you see how it takes it from a focus, man-centered focus, endure, endure, be strong, to Timothy, rest. Endure and rest in your endurance because you can't fail. And why can't you fail? Because God's the one behind it, not you. Timothy, everything hangs on your uh, endurance, but on the other hand, you don't matter. It doesn't matter what you do, God's cause isn't going to fail. Everything hung on on the survival of the Messiah, but in the end, his death didn't matter. It became the very catapult that brought about the fulfillment of these promises. So your death can become the catapult that fulfills your ministry. So endure, because God's behind it, not you. The triumph of the gospel. Do you see how God-focused that is? Instead of man-focused, just endure and be strong. And when the going gets tough, the tough get going. And that kind of cliche stuff that makes it man-centered. One more, quickly. Chapter 3. See, when I, when I taught through that, I started, I had the title of my message, something about endure all things. By the time I was finished with that passage, I changed the title to, The Word of God is Not Bound. Because it can't fail. And then he says. In chapter (coughs) 3. This know that in the last days perilous times shall come. Men shall be lovers of themselves. And he warns Timothy. About self-love. And he describes a whole list of things that come about as a result of self-love. Now we can begin to. And again, when I, start, when I taught through the book of 2 Timothy at home, at first I had my title as the peril of self-love because that's what this chapter brings out. But I didn't like it. Something told me there's something wrong with the peril of self-love. And I wrestled with it. Why? What's wrong with that? And I, and I just thought, well, it's so man-focused. Something is missing if it's just the peril of self-love. As I went through there, I discovered 
Now, as Janus and Jambres withstood Moses, so these also resist the truth. Who were Janus and Jambres? They were the chief magicians in the court of Pharaoh who counterfeited the miracles that Moses did in front of Pharaoh. And he's saying, these men who are in the church, who are counterfeiting the power of God, who are claiming the gospel, yet they are, yet these men are weak people. They are the people who are reprobate. They are the people who are creeping into houses. They're weak men and they're creeping into houses and finding weak women and living immoral lives with the weak women. The weak men find the weak women and live in immorality with them. But their folly, as Janus and Jambres' folly was shown to all men, so their folly shall be made known to all men. They're not going to get away with this. They will be fully exposed at some point. Change the title of my message to the folly of self-love. From the peril of self-love to the folly of self-love. And suddenly it takes the focus from the triumph of the gospel again. The gospel will triumph when you live a life of hypocrisy. It's perilous, yes. But, Timothy, they're going to lose. They're living a life of folly. Why? Because God. At some point... God will take over. So, Timothy, rest. Do what you need to do. But when you have these people you can't get a hold of, they're lying their way out of things, there's a God, and he is going to step in and expose them in his way. And their folly will be known to all men, just like Janus and Jambres' folly was made known to all men. And suddenly it becomes God-centered. God's behind it. Not you. It isn't about Timothy anymore. It's about God and his triumph of the gospel. Now tomorrow let's go into First and Second Samuel and see what First and Second Samuel is really all about. God bless you.